We are in the book of Genesis, and this is Genesis uh, 5 today. And as Mark alluded to, it is a sort of a unique passage. And we are going to read it as we go through with it, so I'm not going to read the whole thing uh, right now, but let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Lord, thank you for this church family. This morning as we come to your word, we pray that you would give us a greater understanding of who you are and what you do and what you're like and what difference you make in our lives. And I pray that in the life of Enoch, we would learn something of how you want us to live, that we would see ourselves in this passage and we would see you. Lord, help us to see you as a patient, loving, merciful, kind, compassionate God who rescues us from sin, despair, and death. And for this, we need your grace. We always need your grace. We need your spirit. Thank you for loving us first and give us the desire to walk with you this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. I'm going to go ahead and take this off because I'm warm. Well, when I was in college, uh, before the age of computers, I spent one summer working at a summer camp in Waltham, Massachusetts. It was a day camp, and it was a group of counselors. We had a group of kids, and we had one junior counselor who complained a lot. And I got into the habit of greeting every one of his whining sessions with the comment, life is tough, and then you die. Not very nice, was it? Clearly a bright future in pastoral ministry for me. <laughs> but that's what I said all summer long. Life is tough, and then you die. But it wasn't altogether untrue. And if I knew Genesis 5 back then, I'm sure I would have based it on this chapter. Because a lot of this chapter can be summarized just that way. Life is tough, and then you die. So, so far we've been introduced to Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, and we're going to meet today a bunch of their descendants. And if you've got a Bible, you can read along with me or in the insert. Um, and what you're going to see is somebody was born, and they died. And this is just going to warm your heart. This is going to encourage you so much. You can read uh, with me Genesis 5. Pay attention because this is really a responsive reading, okay? So you have to pay attention and follow along. It's one of the great genealogies of the Bible. Don't you love the genealogies in the Bible? Like reading the phone book. So follow along with me. We're going to start at verse 3. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he Very good. He died. It's not a real good note to end on, but he did. And one thing you're going to find out about all these people is they live a long time, 900 years. Everybody just sort of goes on forever, and then they die. They get old and die. That's the way it goes. So verse 6, 
When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he... Guys are quick. You're picking up the theme here. Verse 9. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Enosh lived after he fathered Kenan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he... Getting a little anticlimactic, isn't it? There's no description of these guys. It doesn't say, and he was a great guy, played second base for the Red Sox, he could juggle, nothing, just, and he died. Verse 12, when Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Kenan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Kenan were 910 years, and he died. Verse 15, when Mahalalel lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he he died. Kicked the bucket. Pushing up daisies. Metaphysically challenged. Done. Over. Finished. Verse 18. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. You know, you got to stop and wonder. 162 years. Hey, hon, career's sort of settled now. College debt's paid off. How about we start a family? 162 years. It doesn't say anything about that. I just find that bizarre. I don't know how... Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. This is just really encouraging. Let me take another little break here, explain what's going on. When you read this genealogy, what's the predominant mood that comes upon you? How do you feel? Bored? I mean, do any of you feel like saying, you know, Lord, I, I know it's your word and it's inspired, but... This part is really boring. Don't feel bad about that. It's supposed to be boring. That's the point. It's boring. That's life. This is all about life. And in the grand scheme of things, life can be boring. You're born, you sin, you have some breakfast, a few kids, and you die. That's it. But we're going to come back to this. You like the breakfast part, huh? It's we're going to come back to this because whenever something is repeated in the Bible a lot, it means something, something more than we're not very smart and didn't get it the first time. It's a clue that we need to pay attention because something significant is in here. And so we're going to come back to that. We are in Genesis 5 today, and we're going to focus on a few verses in particular, but we do need to look at the big picture of everything going on in this chapter and what we've covered so far and how does that all play out in the Bible, and how does that intersect with our lives? So here's where we are. I'm going to catch you up uh, to Genesis uh, 5. Genesis 1 is about the creation and preparation of the earth. Genesis 2 is about Adam and Eve, our first parents. Genesis 3 is about Satan and sin, although it contains a great promise, the first gospel. 
And from Genesis 3 forward, it's the effects of sin and God's plan for redemption throughout history. Genesis 4, the last few weeks, we looked at Cain and Abel, the first death, the first of many murders between brothers. And next week, you're going to meet Noah and his really big boat. And so what we're going to look at today in Genesis 5 is 1,656 years of a family genealogy. This genealogy is going to look at the family line from Adam, the first man, all the way up to Noah. And in covering those 1,656 years, you will see that Genesis 5 covers roughly the same amount of time as all the rest of the Bible put together. Think about that. We just covered enough time to cover most of the rest of the Bible. We're going over 1,600 years in one chapter. It's a really quick view of human history. And what we see is the effects of sin on the earth. It's an account of Adam's line. It's the genealogy of Adam. And we start with verses 1 and 2. We start with a dazzling promise. I like that word, dazzling. There it says, first two verses, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. <coughs> Last week, uh, Reverend Dorst showed us, um, the Reverend Dorst who's not here today, um, he's with our teens, we hope. At last week, he showed us the dark line of Cain. And that dark picture was not devoid of hope uh, because in contrast to the uh, Cainite line, a new line was raised up, the, the Sethite line. And we saw that at the end of Genesis 4 uh, where it said, And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And with that bright event, chapter 5 introduces a new section in Genesis. This is the second of ten toledoths, which is a word. It's translated here, these are the generations of. And this is the second one. And that's how Genesis gets divided up. And this account runs from Genesis 5, verse 1, through Genesis 6, verse 8. And the first part, which makes up chapter 5, is the Sethite genealogy that extends from Adam through Seth to Noah and eventually on to Moses. And how different it is from the Cainite genealogy. The genealogy of Cain gives us no ages, since his line, being cursed by God, would have no specific recorded history. Once we get past Genesis 4, we pretty much forget about them. But Seth's genealogy not only gives us the age of each patriarch at the time of the firstborn by whom his line would be continued, but the number of years he lived after the birth and the total years of his life. Each individual is important in God's eternal economy. So the Sethite genealogy is introduced by recalling that the descendants of Adam and Seth have been created in the image of God 
and been blessed by him. And the opening line, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. References all the way back to Genesis 1, and specifically Genesis 1.27, the first poem uh, in the Bible. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. And this served to remind the Israelites that the fall had not obliterated the image of God in the descendants of Seth. And because they were image bearers, they still had great potential. First, as image bearers, they have the capacity uh, to hear God's word, which is something that no other creature um, except angels could do. Second, as image bearers, they're charged to rule the earth in God's stead. And third, the image of God in them gives them an intimate spiritual relationship as children of God. In the same way as the image of God hadn't been obliterated by the fall, neither had the blessing been abolished. Thus, the Sethite line is reminded, verse 2, male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. The blessing had been defined in Genesis 1 when God told them to be fruitful and multiply. The Sethites are to fill the earth. And the genealogy in Genesis 5 demonstrates that they did just that because it suggests extraordinary multiplication. The 10-generation structure of the genealogy tells us first that it's a selective genealogy. doesn't mention every person. There's gaps between the ancestors. It leaves room for a substantial increase in population. The other uh, Genesis genealogy in Genesis 11 from Shem to Abram, also includes ten generations. King's David genealogy and Ruth 4 also is given in the form of ten names. And these ten name structures telescope the number of descendants in order to create a compressed history. So we understand the flexibility of this uh, genealogy, plus the repeated emphasis that all these patriarchs had other sons and daughters plus their amazing longevity, average age is 900 years, that includes their offspring, altogether argues for a rapid multiplication of people. So Seth's genealogy shows the patriarchs are living out God's blessing, multiplying and spreading the image of God and humanity throughout the earth, especially as it tells us that many had begun to call upon the name of the Lord. But then we come to the bulk of the chapter, which we read earlier in the opening. By the way, you did a great job. And largely, it seems to be a dark cloud. It seems to be somewhat of a dark cloud. We see, uh, coming into it, the descendants of uh, Adam and Seth have reason for optimism. They have fathered thousands of offspring to whom they had passed on the image of God, people who despite the fall and their sinfulness could hear God's word, could rule and subdue the earth, could live in relationship with God. And some did and some didn't. And yet as they multiplied, the possibilities are great. Nevertheless, the Sethite's optimism is always clouded because the genealogy, as you figured out, continually repeats that depressing phrase, and he died. Adam lived some 930 years, and he, his son Seth lived 912 years, and he, 
It was 905 years for Enosh, and he... Methuselah, a great name, came to within 30-some years of a millennium. And he... Now, the Hebrew for those three words, and he died, is a single word. And so the Sethites are living under this double-edged sword of human experience that we all live under. We have great hope on one hand, and yet death on the other. One writer said, life produces hope, only see it dashed by the all-too-real finality of death. And so it has been since the fall. The day is coming when the earth will not know us. Well, I'll be gone. The day came fast, even for these long-living patriarchs. At death, life is short for all men. Where did it all go, we wonder? Only yesterday I was young and running through the fields. Vast multitudes of people who have been born bearing the image of God, all originals, all beautiful, all full of great potential, and now they've been plowed under. The rains have washed their names from their tombstones. Their bones are no more. And death spread its dark cloud over the patriarch's hopes. And this cycle, as you can see, just goes on and on and on. 1,600 plus years. And he died, and he died, and he died. But then we come to the seventh generation from Adam and the man Enoch. And it brings back to us a bright hope. A bright hope. Look at verse 21. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. He's just like a teenager compared to the rest of them. Enoch walked with God and he was not, for God took him. One commentator writes, this astonishing paragraph shines like a single brilliant star above the earthly record of this chapter. Its light illuminates the dark cloud of Seth's genealogy. The placement of Enoch's name couldn't be more intentionally dramatic. If you remember from last week, the evil Lamech, the man who worshipped his sword, he was number seven in the Canite genealogy, where here Enoch, the man who walked with God, was number seven in the Sethite genealogy. And these two essentially are placed in an eternal antithesis, eternal opposition to each other. They are hell and heaven, exponential death and unbounded life. And there's wisdom for all of us in the life of Enoch. After all, it tells us twice he walked with God. That phrase, you walk with God, is only applied to Enoch and Noah. And it describes the closest communion with God, as if walking side by side with God. The minor prophets use this exact same phrase to describe the intimate walk of the priests as they enter the Holy of Holies to speak directly with God. It Phrase indicates obedience. This metaphor of walking suggests walking along God's path. We still use that today. We'll talk to somebody and they'll say, how's your walk with the Lord going? The 
the idea being that it uh, symbolizes this relationship that you have with God. The Old Testament scholar Alan Ross says, the expression became a common description of the life of fellowship and obedience with the Lord, as if to say that walking with the Lord was a step above mere living. As to the question of how Enoch's walk with God worked out and what characterized it, we get an answer in Hebrews 11, which tells us that Enoch's walk was one of faith. It says, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So his faith pleased God. The next verse tells us what God-pleasing faith looks like, Hebrews eleven six. And without faith, it is impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So first we see that such God-pleasing faith literally believes that God is, that the awesome, sovereign God of creation is the one and only true and living God. Because Enoch was made in God's image, he could hear and respond to God's word, and he did, believing with all his heart that God is who he says he is, and that pleases God. It's the same today. God is pleased with those who wholly believe what his word says about him. Second, Enoch believed that God rewards those who seek him, that God is positively fair and equitable and absolutely just. He also believed the negative side of that, that God judges those who reject him and continue to walk their own way, who don't walk with God. And in the small epistle, Jude reveals that Enoch, just like Noah after him, preached this very thing. In Jude, it says, uh, verses 14 and 15, it says chapter 1 there, but there's only one chapter. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his godly ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness, that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So what we see in some is that Enoch's walk with God includes all of life. His walk is rooted in the deepest intimacy with God. He truly knew God. His walk rested on great faith. He believed in God with all his heart. And he believed that God would judge and reward all who lived. And so he preached the righteousness of God. And that doesn't describe just the high point in his life, but his entire life for 300 years. It describes 300 plus years of a progressively closer walk with God. And so at the age of 365, as I said, still a teenager compared to the rest of these guys, he was not, for God took him. How did God do that? We don't know. It doesn't say. Perhaps it was uh, the way that God uh, did it later with Elijah as Elijah walked along with his successor Elisha in Second Kings. There it says, As they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it and cried, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, 
and he saw him no more. What a way to go. Sounds awesome. You're walking along. It's a couple of ordinary everyday prophets. And God sends the chariots of fire. And there you go. He just disappeared. Got beamed up, so to speak. One thing is sure, his walk with God extends into eternity. I found it really fascinating, Christian poet Lucy Shaw, and I'm not a big poetry person, but this really hit me. She has a poem about Enoch. And uh, in there, she writes one stanza. She says, he crossed the gap another way. He changed his pace, but not his company. I thought that was awesome. We do know what ultimately did happen. He was taken up from this earthly life and transposed to eternal life, exempted by God from the law of death and decay, just as it will be for the faithful who are still alive at the coming of Christ on the last day. As to why God took Enoch, we only have to look at our passage. He's translated to eternal life with God. He spared disease, death, and corruption for the consolation and encouragement of believers and to awaken them to the hope of life after death. Now, God took Enoch about halfway between Adam and the flood. And some of the patriarchs in this genealogy and the hosts of people they represent are alive at that time. They have whole centuries to reflect upon what's happened, to talk about uh, what happened to Enoch and him being taken up to heaven. And I think they must have been encouraged as they tried to faithfully follow God. Did many of Enoch's descendants begin to listen to God's word and walk with him and call on his name? We think so. We don't know for sure. It all foreshadows the New Testament promises of Christ's return, promises with which we're told, uh, particularly in Thessalonians, to comfort one another with these promises. So the question is, how do we walk with God today? It's pretty clear the, the image of God has been passed on to us, so it's possible for us to hear and obey God's word and to live as his children. And yes, we have further marred uh, his image, uh, the image of God by our sin, but the image of God persists. And the wondrous fact is that by God's grace, we can know God intimately. Jesus said that in John 17, and this is eternal life, that they may know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And then this chapter ends with Noah. That's another high point because in Noah, we have another hidden grace. Another hidden grace. It says there, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. So the final name really to notice, I mean, or the final name before Noah is Lamech. And it's interesting, he names his son Noah, which means rest or comfort or relief. And he issues this declaration in verse 29, out of the ground the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and the painful toil of our hands. He's saying, this one will Noah us. 
what a contrast this Lamech is with the other evil Lamech of the of Cain's line. That Lamech, if you remember, was boastful and arrogant, evil, violent. He acted like a, a mafia don, bragging about a man he killed. But the Lamech of Seth's line is a man of faith who believed that through his son would come some deliverance from the curse God put on the ground in Genesis 3. And as a godly father, he looked into the future and saw that somehow his son would be used to comfort people, to bring relief, to bring deliverance. He got far more than he could have ever hoped for. He couldn't possibly have foreseen the great flood that would come and cover the world and wipe out everyone except his son's family. He couldn't imagine the promise that God would give Noah in Genesis 9. That covenant was a promise of a great salvation that would ultimately be fulfilled in the coming of the Lord Jesus to earth. And as Genesis 5 comes to an end, we see how this line, these thousands of people, narrows to one man, Noah, and his three, <coughs> excuse me, his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Have to practice saying Jepheth a few times. Get that right. Thus we see the faithfulness of God to preserve the line of salvation even in what will come to be perilous times of rebellion and widespread unbelief, which we're going to get to over the next several chapters. So, having gotten this great genealogy in Genesis 5, what do we do with this? Well, I think there's two main lessons that we can draw from this ancient genealogy. And the first thing we see is that death reigns. The chapter starts off with this monotonous drumbeat of death. Adam lived and he... Seth lived and he... Enosh lived and he... Kenan lived and he... And so on and on across the generations, the only exception being Enoch, who was taken to heaven. But all the rest lived hundreds of years and then they died. Death reigned in the earliest generations of world history. Last I checked, death still reigns today. Just open any newspaper and look at the obituaries. This morning in the paper, there'll be obituaries. Tomorrow, there will be more. And the day after that, there will be more. Every day, a brand new list. Don't have to repeat the names. Why? because death reigns. And death also reigns for you and me. It's one thing about which we can be perfectly certain. Unless the Lord returns in your lifetime, you're going to die someday. We say nothing is as certain as death and taxes, but death is far more certain than taxes. And how certain is the fact of your death? So certain that an entire industry is built around the expectation of your death. It's called the life insurance industry. The only reason you buy life insurance is because someday you're going to die. If you live forever, you wouldn't need life insurance. But you buy life insurance precisely because you know the fact of your death, but you don't know the time of your death. You pay the money, but in order to get the insurance benefit, you have to die. If you live and don't die, you spent the money and you lose. When you die, someone else gets the money. You lose either way. 
But don't miss the point. Life insurance is based on one great theological truth. Death reigns. When you die, the coroner will fill out a death certificate for you. And on that death certificate, there is a space that says cause of death. And if we understand the Bible correctly, the answer is always the same. Sin. Not sickness, not cancer, not a car accident, not old age. Those are all symptoms of the one great cause of death, which is sin. And sin brings death. It's kind of anticlimactic. And again, that's part of the point here. We're given an earthly perspective and a heavenly perspective. And the earthly perspective is death reigns. You're born, you sin, you die. Your kids are born, you sin, they die. This could go on forever. Born, sin, die. Not that exciting. Not that encouraging. And I know some of you say, no, no, no. We do very important things. I do very important things. I have very important things to do. No, you don't. You're not that important. In the grand scheme of things, we're not even going to know who you are. Nobody 200 years, 300 years from now is going to know who you are. You work in a cubicle, you drive an import, not that big a deal. I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm just trying to say it like it is. You're born, you have breakfast, you have a few kids, you die, that's it. Most people make the newspaper twice. They're born, they die. In the middle, they don't say anything about you unless... You know, you're doing something that's newsworthy, like, you know, you do something catastrophic, like kill somebody, or some awful, terrible, godless thing, like join a boy band. <laughs> Otherwise, they don't say anything. Why? Because we're not that important. Every generation thinks they're important. They're not. How many of you can go back 10 generations in your head right now? Nobody. We forget. Now, there's people out there that say, oh, but what about evolution? Give it time, baby. We're going to get better. What about education? Give it time. We're going to get better. More time. 1,600 years. Die, 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 die. No evolution, no nothing, just dead. That's the point from the earthly perspective. It's like a stationary bike. Every generation gets on. Pedal, 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 die, fall off the bike. Next generation, pedal, 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 die, fall off the bike. Third generation, pedal, 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 die, fall off the bike. And the evolutionary philosophers come along and say, look at all the progress we've made. It's a stationary bike. We haven't gone anywhere. You know, human history is like driving around the cul-de-sac. You know, around and around we go. Look at that tree. Look at that tree. Look at that tree. The scenery is amazing. Look at that tree. It's the same tree. That's human history from an earthly perspective. Life is tough, and then you... But then right in the middle, this other guy shows up, and he's different. And that's because really, truly, biblically, from a heavenly perspective... The truth is that people matter. And that's what you need to get up here. The earthly perspective, life is tough, then you die. But the heavenly perspective is different. It's totally different. Because here people matter, even if they're unknown. I mean, that should be obvious here. Kenan, Mahalalel, unknown to us. We can't say anything definite about what they did. 
Their personal details are completely hidden from us. But this much we do know. They're in a godly line that stretches from Adam to Noah. And they're both vital links in the chain. Even though Adam and Noah are much better known to us, without Kenan and Mahalalel, the line would be broken. Noah wouldn't be born. And Mahalalel was the grandfather of Enoch, who walked with God. I think that would be a great thing. You get to heaven, St. Peter meets you there. I don't know how that actually works, but say he does. You know, tell me about your life. See my grandson, Enoch. He's walking with God. That, that's pretty, pretty well. That's pretty good. These names to us are just words on paper, but they represent men who once walked on the earth a long time ago, and they lived for God in an ungodly age and believed in God when others scoffed at him, and they are true heroes, and they deserve to be remembered and honored, and they remind us that no one is ever forgotten or overlooked by the Lord. Those who stand strong in their faith today will one day shine. And God is not so unjust as to forget those who labor for him in obscurity. People matter. Names matter. Kenan matters. His name is in the book. The Christian life is not a marathon or a sprint. It's a relay race where one person runs and then hands the baton of faith to the next runner who runs and hands it to the next runner. And the most critical moment in any relay race is a few seconds when the runner who is finishing hands the baton to the runner who is starting. And timing is critical in the positioning of the hands. The tiniest mistake can cause the baton uh, to be bobbled or to be dropped. Relay races are often won or lost at exactly that moment, at the handoff. And that's the story of Genesis 5. Adam ran the race of faith, handed the baton to Seth, who ran hard, and handed it to his son Enosh, who also ran hard. Before he died, he passed it along to his son Kenan, who passed it to Mahalalel, who passed it to Jared, who passed it on to Enoch. And as Enoch was rising to the sky, he tossed it to his son Methuselah, who caught it and started running. And eventually, he passed the baton of faith to Lamech, who made sure that Noah got it. Ten generations, ten men, Ten fathers who made sure their sons caught the baton and passed it on to the next generation. It's a life of faith in a nutshell. What we've been given, we pass along to our friends and neighbors. We pass it along to our co-workers and to our classmates. We tell it to our family and we pray and labor and to make sure that our children and our grandchildren pick up the baton and start running with it. Nothing matters more. If we're rich and successful, if we're famous and blessed, if we're regarded as the best and the brightest, if we're quoted and praised, it all's not going to count for anything if we fail to pass the baton of faith on to the next generation. What shall profit a man if he gain the whole world and yet lose his own family? The verse says lose his own soul. And I'm applying that here to our family. Somebody asked, what would be the toughest thing you could imagine for you as a father? I have five children. I want all five to be next to me in heaven. Seven, three on the right facing the throne. 
I can't imagine, and I know we'll be overjoyed in heaven, but if only four showed up. I just think that somehow that sorrow would be overwhelming. If we go to our grave, and we will, knowing that our children and our grandchildren believe in Jesus, then we can die happy, knowing that our time on earth was not spent in vain. Now, I know that we have children who are all over the place. And some are walking with God and some aren't. But we have a number of prodigal children represented in this congregation. But I also know that some of you were prodigal children once upon a time. And now you're here. And hope is not lost. You need to pray and tell the gospel to your children and never give up. And never stop praying. God is faithful to his word. And if you walk with God, you can come to the end of life with full assurance that the best is yet to come. My prayer this morning is that God would help us to run the race with endurance so that we can pass the baton of faith on to those who come after us. You need to think about that. And you need to pray about that. It would probably be good to do that now.